Welcome to the Get Over Yourself podcast. This is author and athlete Brad Kearns discovering ways to be healthy, fit, and happy in hectic, high-stress modern life. So let's slow down and take a deep breath, take a cold plunge, and expertly balance that competitive intensity with an appreciation of the journey. That's the theme of the show. Here we go. The Get Over Yourself podcast is brought to you by Almost Heaven, beautiful compact home use sauna kits, ancestral supplements, grass-fed organ meats in a capsule, DNA Fit, genetic testing for custom diet and exercise recommendations, Integro Health, high-potency liquid probiotic called Flourish, Organifi, organic powdered superfoods, delicious green, gold, and red powders, Wild Idea Buffalo, sustainable, grass-fed, beyond organic, and check out the bradkearns.com slash shop page. That's my personal selection of favorite products for health, fitness, and peak performance. And here we go with the show. People have been consuming dairy probably for 40,000 years because that's about how long we've been domesticating goats. And so, you know, chances are really good that once we start domesticating goats, we use them for every bit that we possibly could. Sushi even actually was a fermented food traditionally because fish would run up river, right, in mm -hmm. big runs, and you catch all these fish all at once, more than you needed to eat, so there was uh, a need to preserve them. And what was done was they actually packed the fish in, in rice, and there was some kind of a bacillus bacteria species in the rice that helped to control the the rotting process this is what fermentation is controlled rotting and so the fish were preserved in a way that was not poisonous you know if you think about it in terms of history it's so important to understand this because the history of nutrition education is such that they basically pretend we don't have any science they pretend that there was no science no nutrition science prior to 1950 or so Let's talk about probiotics from Integro Health. Do you want me to sing the messages? Nah. But probiotics are an extremely important concept. Hopefully you're all in on the values, the benefits of nourishing a healthy gut microbiome so you can flourish in life. And that's the name of Integro's product, Flourish, a unique, extremely potent living liquid probiotic. Yes, it's liquid form. How is it different from other probiotics we usually see in pills? This is the message from Integro. Microbes continue to thrive and metabolize in their own milieu. Do you like when companies use the word milieu to describe their product? I do. These include short-chain fatty acids, bioactive peptides, amino acids, enzymes, and minerals. The liquid base makes it acid-stable, so microbes can survive the stomach environment and transit to the lower GI tract for integration to give you a healthy gut microbiome. There's 11 different strains in this thing, carefully hand-cultivated in the laboratory with precision to deliver 8 billion total CFU. Why take probiotics? Come on, you have to ask. 
It's going to strengthen your immune function, reduce systemic inflammation, the root cause of all disease, improve digestion, promote bowel regularity, relieve gas and bloating, get you going again after illness or antibiotic use. That's me because I first got this shipment the very day I returned home from a Mexican vacation and had a stomach illness once again. What a bummer. So sad because I love going down south, but I needed to repair and return to action quickly. So I started guzzling this stuff and had a wonderful return to health. I'm a very enthusiastic user and will be over the long run because I need all the help I can get. I don't know about you when we're talking about our routine usage of antibiotics, the stress we put on our system and in the environment every single day. I especially notice my gut health is compromised when I engage in overly intensive athletic training, have trouble recovering. My gut is the first thing to go. So this is my go-to product, the Flourish Probiotic in liquid form. Try it yourself. I love the delicious root beer float flavor. Just kidding, man. This stuff is no funny business. This is the real deal. It's very potent. It tastes fine. It goes down okay, but no root beer float flavor. Sorry. Take it. You'll love it. Go look at IntegroHealth.com for more information and to order shipped directly to your door in its unique liquid form. Flourish! Hey, listeners, I'm so excited to bring you the first of two shows recorded in the beautiful Connecticut home of the wise and powerful Dr. Kate Shanahan. I rank Kate at the very, very top of the charts for health authority and broad-based experience and interests and background that brings her message to the forefront of anything you will ever learn and hear about health. She has the most refined and wonderful bullshit meter of anybody out there. So I consult with her all the time about what's hype and what's real. And we have a whole show focused on that theme. But this show, I just want you to get to know her, find out about her extremely interesting background, especially all the places that she's lived, and especially what Kate brings to the table that I think is so unique and powerful is her disparate talents and interests. So she's a longtime family physician actually caring for real humans on a day-to-day -day basis and consulting for companies to help their entire employee base be healthy along with being a prominent author and speaker and frequent podcast guest in the ancestral health movement. And then at the third point of the golden triangle of broad experience, Kate is an enthusiastic researcher and scientist at heart. So she's up on all the research studies. She actually reads them besides just summarizing them and doing the talking points and in conclusion, consequently, most refreshing of all, she is a straight shooter. So when she smells bullshit, she will have no problem calling out Harvard University as a bunch of liars and information concealers. Oh, yes, it's getting a little spicy these days especially in the diet, health, fitness industries. So Kate is our beacon of reasonability and critical thinking. That's why I know you're going to love the show and many more. So go look for her at drkate.com, learn more, especially get her magnificent book, Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food, featuring the four pillars of the human diet. And oh my gosh, what a wonderful revelation this was for me 
a healthy, extremely devoted primal eater, but when I was exposed to Kate's four pillars, I realized that I was almost entirely missing two of them and that I needed to broaden my perspective about what healthy eating really is, honoring the ancestral traditions rather than just plugging them into food choices and macronutrient calculations. You know, when I first heard Dr. Kate was on a random podcast probably six years ago, and I was just listening to another health show, and she was on there making so much sense and talking with such enthusiasm and clarity that I actually tracked her down. And she was working in Napa, California at the time. I called her office. I thought I was just going to leave a message or find out the customer service email to send a random inquiry to. And they're like, hold on a second. And then she got on the phone. I'm like, what? I'm talking to the all-powerful Dr. Kate herself? She's like, uh, yeah. So I said, you know what? You make the most sense of anybody I've heard in this whole game. And we got to do some work together. So we had the start of a long, wonderful relationship. She used to have a physician consulting service that we ran through Primal, a Primal aligned physician, if you will. And now she's doing all kinds of wonderful things. We'll learn all about what she's been up to. Thank you for listening. Dr. Kate Shanahan. Dr. Kate Shanahan, we're here in your home in Connecticut. Thank you for having us. Great to visit. Apparently, you're not long for this place, which is your uh, routine since I've known you. Can we get the entire guided tour from, uh, let's say you took off from the East Coast, what, more than 10 years ago now? And where'd you go? All right. So um, get a globe. Those of you <laughs> listening at home, get a pen and paper out. So let's see. Um Left from Syracuse for... That's um, your home. That's, yeah, a, that's your hood. That's where my right. parents live. Okay. Then went to um, residency in Tucson where I met Luke and married in Tucson. What the heck was he doing there? Um, he was being a poet. So in other words, he was hanging out, wearing leather jackets and, you know, saying things that people thought were cool. As he still does. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then from there, we went up to a little town called Clay Elm in the Cascades, where they actually filmed Northern Exposure. Supposed to be in Alaska, but it was actually in this Clay Elm, Washington in the Cascade Mountains. Stayed there for a year. Then we went to Everett, Washington. So that was a very short move for us. It was only two hours away. Then Luke got into law school. So we went to Minnesota. Minneapolis, Minnesota, stayed there for a year because he had had an eye surgery and uh, it uh, was causing problems. And so he couldn't finish law school. So we went to Hawaii, stayed there for 11 years. 11. Wow. Then. Which that, island? That was Kauai. Kauai. Mm -hmm. Then we went to New Hampshire, uh, stayed there for a year and a half. Then we went to Napa, stayed there for three years. Then we went to Denver, Colorado. Uh, area, a little town called Morrison in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. It was very pretty. Um, and then we came here into Westport, Connecticut. Home of Martha Stewart and other celebs, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, celebrities running around here. They all uh, congregate around a little grocery store that sells grass-fed meat for $900 an ounce. And uh, it's called Double L Market. And... Um, and then um, I'm, I'm probably going to have to leave this little house. That I really like this house, um, but go to a town called Mount Dora, Florida. So because I, I have a job in Orlando, Florida. So I'll probably be going down there and hopefully that'll be it. Like everybody 
you know, I mean, I can just, I, I feel like I could just be like, okay, so many people go here to die here. That's my goal. My goal is to drop dead in Florida. Someday. <laughs> I don't want to have to move soon. again. Right. Yeah. Like hopefully I can enjoy living in Florida for a while. Well, as Southern California, now Northern California my whole life, right? I, I don't understand how if you experience decent weather, how you could ever uh, tolerate, you know, these, these winters of slipping on the ice and breaking your elbow and all the things people deal with, which are unimaginable to me, having, having born and raised in decent weather. I mean, yeah. I, I, I can understand people moving to California or Florida, but the other way around would be like, wait a sec. It's a different psychic state. You just get ready for um, suffering. But you also have the pleasure <laughs> every of, year. <laughs> yeah, you also have the pleasure of scenery changing and um, and peace and quiet. You know, like California, if you're camping and trying to sleep in the side of the road somewhere, there's going to be a cop that tells you, you know, get out of here. But if you're doing that in New Hampshire, or Vermont, or some back roads in Connecticut, no one cares. It's not, you know, the land's not really worth anything. But in, in in California, it's all worth so much that the cops keep a close eye on it. <laughs> yeah, among <laughs> other things. I mean, the, the weather and the attraction it brings with a high expense and the, the crowds and the, and the traffic. And I, I like reading about those quality of life. Uh, magazine articles where they say the number one city to live in in America is St. Louis because people spend only 11% of their income on housing. And in the Bay Area, they spend 46%. It's like, wow, that's pretty heavy. I mean, I don't know anybody. I know a few people in St. Louis. Thank you, the Primal Paleo group out there that hosted me a couple years ago. It's an awesome town with the big giant gateway arch. I love that thing. But there's a lot of considerations like that that you don't realize unless you uh, move around like you guys have. So, yeah, what we like about here is that there's Italians here and Italians make great meat. So, I mean, we don't eat them for their meat. We, <laughs> they make, they sell it. <laughs> In case you're from the West Coast, you may not know that. So I just want to make sure that's clear. Don't eat the Italians. Let them make your deli meat Keep for them you. alive. Yes. And, um, and they'll make fantastic deli meat. It is so worth living here just for the pastrami. I can't wait. I'm going to try some <laughs> later. So your wonderful book, Deep Nutrition, which has had uh, a long life being that you rewrote it, had it republished in a larger format. And one of the big uh, elements of that, which was so cool, was this you know, ancestral experience and your, your time in Kauai that gave you these uh, epiphanies, these insights about the traditional diet, especially in that area. Can you tell us a little about that? Uh, yeah. So, well, I guess you, 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 like the um, what uh, traditional diet is in Hawaii. So um, what it, uh, you know, there weren't actually a lot of Hawaiians in Hawaii when we were there. They, um, Captain Cook um, kind of saw the last of them, really. And they, they were wiped out 90 percent or so. Within, I think it was like ten years of Captain, Captain Cook's Cook and arrival. his boys. Yeah. Oh mercy! That was what Syphilis. late seventeen hundreds or something. Yeah, like, he wiped out ninety percent of the population. Yeah, oh mercy! We brought a lot of germs with us. Yeah. Why does he have big ass statues around Hawaii then? That's terrible news. Well, they really didn't like it's him. Like Columbus, you know, for, exactly. Yes, it was. It's a controversial thing even to put up those statues, but um, 
But uh, so the culture in Hawaii now is a melting pot of Asia and, um, and, and the seafaring parts of Europe. So Portuguese and um, German and, um, and uh, all over China, Korea. Um, and it turns out that even though they came from all over the world, they all agreed that um, you know, beef is good food and so is pork and they do a lot of stuff in common. And so while I was, my husband and I were living in Hawaii, that's when we wrote our first book, Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food. And what we were doing was try to figure out what, you know, what people should eat, right? Basic question. And, and this is, this is a basic question that um, doesn't get the respect it deserves most of the time when people answer it, you know? Um, and as a doctor, I paid a lot for my medical education, um, in the nineties. So a long time ago, I paid a lot. It's even more now. I did not learn anything true or worthwhile about nutrition, what people are supposed to eat. Ooh, pull quote for the show. (laughs) So as a doctor, you did not learn much about nutrition. Right. What I learned was mostly not true. I mean, I, I can summarize everything I learned um, that fat makes you fat, cholesterol clogs your arteries and salt gives you hypertension. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. And I, I, I knew that going in because as a student of the Cheerios cereal box, you know, I picked that up when I was about eight or so. So that's, you know, what doctors learn. Um, but the thing is, and this is something that a lot of folks um you know, if you think about it in terms of history, um, it, it, it's it's so important to understand this because the history of nutrition education um, is such that they basically pretend we don't have any science. They pre- pretend that there was no science, no nutrition science prior to 1950 or so, right? Because like all the rules and everything, this stuff about fat and cholesterol, comes from 1950 with the diet heart hypothesis and and all that is all spawned from there. And they, they use uh, statistical analysis to try to figure out, you know, what correlates with longevity or what correlates with heart attacks or what correlates with Alzheimer's or whatever. And so it is an absolutely worthless science that way, because I mean, over a lifetime, uh, you know, are you going to remember how much bologna you ate, you know, when you're being surveyed at 82 and you now you have dementia? Are you going to be able to, this is how they do it. I mean, I'm serious. They they, they do recall studies. Well, what did you eat? You know, or is that the, the official term is a recall study. That's one of and the And so you're ways. asking for subjective answers. Correct. How frequently do you eat French fries or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the common ways of doing it. It's all based, most of the studies are based on recall. There's very few prospective studies that go forward with you in time and you write down what you're doing as you do it. Framingham study being one. Where yes. they, they track the people since 1948. Yes. That's yes. why it's highly respected. Yes, okay. it is a very good body of data. But the questions that you can answer are only as good as the thought process behind those questions. And because everybody's pretending that we don't have a real nutrition science, um, we're starting from scratch. And and this is a point I want to make is that it, it's not true. We do have nutrition science. We have the best um most ancient uh, 
biggest body of nutrition science out there is the collective world of cookbooks that were published, you know, before 1950, when, when it was all tainted with this um, idea that saturated fat was bad and so on. Um, and, and so um, that the cookbooks contain recipes and these recipes are instructions on how to feed and grow healthy human beings, because this is what was done. If we couldn't produce healthy children, if we couldn't uh, produce healthy human bodies that were sturdy, robust, um, we would have died out. And they, right, because, you know, we didn't have safety nets hundred years, more than hundred years ago, there was pretty much almost no safe social safety net. If you you know, were elderly and your teeth were falling out, well, someone was going to have to cut up your food for you or chew it for you. If you couldn't breastfeed, right? If you were a mother and you couldn't breastfeed, well, if you were rich and you could afford a wet nurse, mm-hmm. your baby would live. But if you weren't, you know, your baby would die. Um, and so, you know, people had to be extraordinarily healthy to be able to make it to reproductive age, and then even more so to be able to become elderly. And people did, people did that. And they did that by eating traditional cuisine, not by restricting their salt because they thought it was going to cause hypertension. So the idea that we need a new, a new nutrition science is complete baloney what we need to do is respect the reality that cookbooks are essentially nutrition science. They they are a diary. They are the food diary of what people who were healthier than us by every measure. And now we have the stats to prove it, right? Because children born today have a shorter life expectancy than their parents for the first time in a long time. We've really screwed up. Um, And um, so if we want to look and see the, the food recall diary that was actually written down, that's very accurate. We just look at cookbooks, millions of pages, millions of recipes from all over the world. So that's what my husband and I did. If you don't want, if you don't want to spend the time flipping through millions of pages, you can just flip through four or 500 or so of deep nutrition. Cause when we wrote our book, we analyzed all of that and we broke it down into what the four common elements were of every cuisine, every people everywhere all over the world. And, um, and so that's a long answer to your question that you asked like uh, five hours ago about what did you learn about <laughs> nutrition on Hawaii? So that, that's, you know, that's the melting pot um, of culture of the, the Asian cultures there and the, the um, creativity with which they would just use everything. Like they would hunt for goat or hunt for pig or fish or raise goats in their backyard or raise cows or whatever, but they would use all of it, you know, and it had never occurred to me as a white person from Connecticut that you could eat things like goat leg or, you know, um, lungs, you know, it just, it was that what you can eat that stuff. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near-infrared 
time for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. Hey, ladies. You may have heard me talk about Gaines Wave treatment for improving male penile vascular health and sexual function, and maybe you thought, hey, what about my needs? Well, Gaines Wave has got you covered with a revolutionary new treatment protocol called Gaines Wave for Her. As with the male Gaines Wave treatment, a skilled practitioner uses a handheld device to send low-intensity shock waves into your vaginal area to stimulate a healing response, promote increased blood circulation, and the growth of new blood vessels. After a series of 6 to 12 very brief treatments, which are painless but extremely effective, you get real results with Gaines Wave reporting an 80% success rate. Some benefits... You will revitalize your intimate relationships with heightened sensation and arousal and enhance pleasure and satisfaction. Don't contemplate invasive procedures or uncomfortable medical treatments. Regain confidence and reclaim your sexuality with Gaines Wave for her. You visit the website gainswave.com, G-A-I-N-S-W-A-V-E.com slash Brad to find a practitioner in your area. You complete a series of treatments and the beneficial effects will last for a long time, especially if you eat and exercise well to promote overall vascular health. It's a tune-up for your equipment. So please visit gainswave.com slash Brad to find a practitioner in your area and take advantage 
advantage of my special promo that you'll mention when you find your local practitioner. Buy six treatments and get one free. Weren't you guys invited to a potluck in the neighborhood or something like that? And you you show up and there's some there's some eyeballs over here and brains over here or some kind of thing like that. I didn't know it at the time, but that was really a defining moment in my life, you know, because it was what opened my eyes to this whole world of there's more to meat than meat than muscle meat, right? It's it's lean meats. We want to make sure it's ninety percent lean instead of eighty five. All that complete backward stuff. Yeah. So the. Hawaii culture there, I mean, if you call yourself a native Hawaiian or a multi-generation Hawaiian, you're really talking about possibly a European settler or someone from the Asian areas because the the actual traditional population was wiped out. So we're just doing the best we can to identify people that have been going for numerous generations with with a lot of traditional influence as opposed to the shaved ice and the uh, the, the modern day United States of America, Hawaii. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely some people with Hawaiian heritage there, um, but it's it's totally a tiny minority. And even that is somewhat, you know, diluted with cultural influence from um, uh, from you know the fact that the majority of the people there were not Hawaiian anymore. But um, but, you know, in terms of nutrition and cuisine and culinarily, it, it it almost doesn't matter that much because they all do the same things. Right. Like. Even the Hawaiians, um, they talk about the canoe plants that the Hawaiians brought, like a banana and the coconut and a couple other plants that they use to um, to like make clothing and housing out of and tools, equipment and stuff like that. But um, it, it, there's a, a very good chance that they also brought some animals with them, some pot-bellied pigs, because uh, certainly... Um, the 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 folks that came later from Asia did. Um, and what they do is they basically bring animals that they like to eat and let them roam loose in Hawaii. And then they, you know, figure out how to survive. And those that do become their hunting, you know, animals that they now they go hunt. So that very much the way I think Native Americans here on the continent probably worked. It was, you just kind of support the animal and plant populations that are of use to you. And that's kind of what they did on Hawaii. And, um, and, you know, people do that. It seems like, like everywhere. (laughs) If you look at traditional cultures, you see them, you know, using instead of um, cows, they'll use camels, right, to milk the camels. And instead of riding horses, well, they'll ride the camels or whatever they got, you know, they kind of do the same things. They use the animals and the plants in very similar ways to get by. And that includes um, feeding themselves. And so when it comes to the rules on feeding themselves, we broke it down into four rules, which is people would eat fresh food. They would eat um, the, the, all the organs, you know, of the animal they would including even do do stuff with uh, like boiling bones to use the bones and the skin and joint material. And then they would ferment and sprout um, whatever they could to preserve it or to, to make it edible. In the case of seeds, they have to sprout those and they have to ferment like extra stuff because there's no freezer to store stuff in. You can't can things. You don't have cans. So um, so you ferment it and that's a great way to preserve your extra. So um, those are the four pillars of world cuisine and those are the four pillars of the human diet. That's what we all need. Fresh food. Let's, let's define them a little more slowly. So we have fresh, which would be fruits, vegetables, 
Stuff that hasn't been cooked, basically. So uh, eating it the way uh, you get it, right? So, and that includes even, um, you know, dairy, like fresh milk. You don't pasteurize, homogenize. How could they have done that? Mm. Um, and and people have been consuming dairy probably for 40,000 years because that's about mm. how long we've been um, domesticating goats. And so, you know, chances are really good that once we started domesticating goats, we used them for every bit that we possibly could. And, you know, we, we do have this practice, this ancient practice of using wet nurses. And so I'm sure there was a similar thing where babies, you know, who didn't, whose parents died or whatever, you need to get some milk into the infant, you would milk the animal. And so folks who talk about it, like it's just so, so unnatural and bizarre for us to be milking other animals. It's not paleo. <laughs> Dairy isn't paleo. Wait a sec. The first of Dr. Oh, Kate's was. many shout downs during the show. <laughs> oh my gosh, we're teeing up, teeing up the ball for you. Yeah, I mean, 40,000 years ago, that's pretty much paleo. And so... It's pretty uh, legit, man. Yeah. Have I, some goat milk and yeah, some goat cheese. Not, right? What's so goats came first before cows for um, domestication? That's, that's the thinking. I mean, that's the best, you know, records that we have right now. And if you think about it, it makes sense. They're smaller, they're more versatile, they're more, you know, diverse in what they can eat. Um and um, you can manage them, right? It's very important to be able to push around your animals if they've got a river to cross while you've got a migrate. Grab those horns, right? Yeah, yeah. While you've got a migrate. Damn goat, you're driving me crazy. We Come here. Migrate now. Don't you, know? you heard me, you little rat. Those guys are a little. They're a little naughty. There's uh, neighbors have some goats, and you see them knocking stuff over and making noise and. They got personality. Yeah, they got minds of their own, right? Yeah. They're smart. So, um, so yeah, so I think it probably goats and dogs, right? I th- you know, some folks say it was dogs that we domesticated first because they helped us hunt. But, I, you know, it's whatever. It, we'd, we didn't milk the dogs. Nor eat them, <laughs> generally speaking, generally. right? I thought they were helping us. I thought there was a, a give and take there where the dogs kind of kept us safe or the, the descendants of the wolves. And then they got yeah. our scraps. That's what I understand. And yeah. that's going back 100,000 years far. or more. Yeah. Yes. And fire goes back pre-human, right? 1.5 million years. There's no Pre-human? Way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who lit the fires? The wolves? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's what, my, that's what my dog would say. Why is she laughing, listeners? That was a legit question. <laughs> my, my dog can put his two paws together and like play with a ball work through like a sock if, if he wants to chew it. <laughs> Never underestimate your pets. Um, but um, no, it, it was like some sort of hominid type thing. I, you know, I don't know, whatever we were of homo wow. before erectus wow. maybe, or something, habilis or something. Rubbing something sticks. Rather us. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And people were making boats 700,000 years ago. I mean, before we were people. So before we were, no, wait, no, it was more than some uh, long time ago. That's how they got to the continent of India. Um, so through, through boats. Yeah. Yeah. And that was how long ago? I think it was somewhere around 700,000, but I may, oh, be, okay. I may be way off. So here. this human evolution timeline, time we're familiar with the, the modern homo sapiens appeared 160 to 200,000 years ago in East Africa. And then they left there around 60,000 years ago and, and colonized the globe gradually. But we're talking about pre- Pre-homo sapiens. Some good stuff was done yeah. before that, right? Because wow. that's what fire came from. You know, we, we might have, you know, been using that. We didn't maybe come up with that ourselves. We maybe didn't even invent the wheel. I don't know. So, oh, <laughs> so but we're getting off topic. Yeah, okay, yeah. So we had fresh foods. Right. That stuff, that's fresh. Pretty obvious to understand. The second one was organ meats. 
Um, yeah. So actually, let me do it in this order. So fresh food yeah, and do fermented, it in your order. fermented oh. and sprouted. Yeah. Okay. I, I so we got the, the first F, before. the second F, fresh, then fermented and sprouted. Right. Because when you got too much fresh stuff to eat all at once, you got to store the extra. So the great way to do that is to ferment it. Um, so sushi even actually was a fermented food traditionally because fish would run up river, right? And mm -hmm. big runs and you catch all these fish all at once more than you needed to eat. So there was uh, a need to preserve them. And what was done was they actually packed the fish in, in rice. And there was some kind of a um, bacillus bacteria species in the rice that helped to um, control the the rotting process. This is what fermentation is, controlled rotting. And so the, the fish were preserved in a way that um, was not poisonous, right? So, so that's all, that's all that fermented food really is. It's rotten food that isn't poisonous. And when you eat it um, and you're told by your parents from a really young age that it's good for you and it has all these good feelings associated with it, then it will taste good. And that is really what, you know, taste is defined by is it's supposed to be a lot of cultural de definition, right? We're supposed to have happy, good thoughts and feel good and um, all this kind of stuff. That's how our taste buds get entrained to learn what is a good thing for us to eat. And so th that's how, you know, that's how come these days, since we don't grow up eating very sophisticated flavors, we grow up eating mostly sugar. Um, that's how come a lot of folks don't really enjoy organ meats the way people used to, because we just didn't grow up eating and we never learned to taste them properly. So you're saying there's a psychological component where as a little kid and we say, if, if, if you, if you clean up your room and, and do your chores, I'll take you out for ice cream, <laughs> ice cream, it's going to be the greatest treat and reward. And yeah. so we start getting, there, there's a socializing aspect besides the taste buds. Yeah, right. I thought you were going to say, I'll, I'll take you out for some fermented liver paste <laughs> or something. <laughs> but, yes, it's exactly right. It is. Um, it's the associated emotions and everything around it, right? So we're we're using something as a reward these days, sugar that has a sweet taste that is its own reward. So it's a waste, right? It's a waste of that reward system, all these complex things in our brain, the, uh, the appetite regulation chemicals and our hypothalamus, they're, they're there to help us eat what our parents want us to eat. And nowadays, our parents don't know what to tell us to eat. So we grow up eating sugar. Is sugar overriding the more uh, nuanced taste that we're capable of? The... That's such a good question. Yes. It is because mm -hmm. it's just powerful and it has the addictive properties as well, like yes. rewiring the, I mean, this is from the Keto Reset Diet. I quoted a pr prominent expert, Dr. Kate Shanahan uh -huh. in there about the neural reward system of the brain is getting rewired. And so you literally are addicted to sugar. And that's why it's so difficult to drop out of the diet because it's, it's just it's short circuiting our true six tastes on our taste buds and the, all the, the, the four categories of uh, human nutrition. Well, what it does is it tells, um, it tells us to eat more of it, right? So sugar uniquely is um, something that says no matter what the, you know, the environmental stimuli, no matter what emotional state, sugar is something that is going to give you pleasure um, and it's going to reinforce more sugar. So you're going to want more. So it's almost impossible um, to not become addicted to sugar if you get it at a young enough age with, 
you know, the right emotional, you know, like as a reward and all this kind of stuff that children are now brought up with. And so it's a very tough addiction to break, but it, you, it, I actually have a protocol for doing it, for breaking that. And right. You yell at your kid when you serve him an ice cream, here you go, you little rat, <laughs> eat this thing. Yeah. You stick I hope you hate it. And, yeah. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's, they're it's, crying it's while they're eating less, their ice cream. Much less painful oh. and illegal than that. <laughs> But that'll be in the, the next book that's being written right now. Right. What's it called? The Fat Burn Fix. Oh, man. You, you, you <laughs> gave me some teasers last night. It was extremely compelling. We'll get into that in a second. I don't want to break the storyline. But um, so we, we had that fresh foods. Fermented and sprouted. Then we had the fermented and sprouted. Mm-hmm. And great for those people that didn't have refrigerators. But today, the importance of consuming those foods goes beyond that. Probiotics, right? <gasps> so probiotics, live gut health. Exactly. So there's all kinds of people selling supplements and stuff these days, and what they don't really know what to put. What kind of species of the five thousand that we have in our intestines? There's five thousand different species. A lot to choose from when you're trying to create a supplement. So what do you do? You just guess, and that's what they're doing. They're really just guessing for all probiotic products. Yeah, right. and there's some educated guesses, but I would rather just do what people used to do because we know that worked and and that is just eat fermented food. And so, you know, yogurt and fermented pickles, lacto fermented um, uh, pickles and sauerkraut and kimchi. Those are some of the most popular and accessible fermented foods that'll, they really make a difference for me. I know like when I'm working um, in the clinical setting during cold and flu season and people are coughing and sneezing on me, if I every day get just like an ounce or two of some kind of cultured kimchi or sauerkraut or something with those live bacteria in there, I I don't get sick. And if I don't have it for a few days in a row and people continue coughing and sneezing on me, um, I, I often get sick. So those things really, really help your immune system. Then your immune system starts in your gut, right? So you have a healthy gut, you can have much healthier immune system. And so um, those kinds of sour and um, salty foods are so essential to a healthy immune system. Uh, that brings us to number three. That would be meat on the bone. So this is one that is extremely tasty. And um, we're talking about like chicken stock, beef stock that's been made with bone material and and not the bone marrow, but the joint material. Mm. Um, so the cartilage at the end of the bone, the white shiny stuff that um, is um, lubricating the joints and the, that the tendons and ligaments are made out of, and even skin is made out of. And when you uh, break that down in uh, a boiling pot with some vegetables, uh, it turns into these compounds that called glycosaminoglycans and proteoglycans, and they have really long names, but they're very special molecules. They don't get digested. Their digestive system doesn't break them down. They actually enter your bloodstream and head directly to your own joint tissue, your connective tissue, your skin, and they support the health of your um, your joints and your skin. And they, so they, I mean, you can really get healthy looking skin from eating this stuff. And it makes a huge difference on your joints, especially like my fingers. Cause like fingers are, um, very loaded. Uh, they're, they're, they're like, um, long tendons, you know, your fingers basically are operated by super long tendons and a very long tendon sheet. So your fingers are like the longest, skinniest joints you can imagine. Mm. Um, 
sort of, you can kind of think of it that way. The whole thing needs to be lubricated with joint fluid and um, your body's going to be better able to make more healthy joint fluid if you've been getting these glycosamine glycans. And I mean, the good news is that they taste really good. The bad news is if you're a vegan, there's not any known substitute. Like you might be able to substitute with some forms of seaweed. A but vegan can't even take their collagen powder. Is that against the vegan rules? Well, if it's made from bone, it, it, it could be against their rules. You know, yeah. so everybody defines their own vegan yeah. rules, I guess. But What if uh, the, um, the rototiller of the wheat field catches a mouse in the blades and then it's dispersed molecularly into their bread? Is that against the rules? Sorry. <laughs> just asking peeps. Just looking out for you, vegan peeps. Right. Yeah, I guess, you know, that would be hard to avoid. Uh, so you... I heard about this, uh, is it called the heliotropic effect where if you ingest the collagen, it's going to go to the joints that need it the most because I have a sore left elbow. Is it going to target that? Is there anything to yes, that? Yes, it does. Yes. Um, oh, it's a miracle. It is totally but, a miracle. But wait a second. You're our BS meter and you're saying it actually is true. Yes, it is actually Fabulous. true. They've done studies where they radio label this, uh, this, uh, these kind of molecules. They feed them to mice with injured joints. So the mice are eating the green, the the yellow glowing Glowing, fluorescent yogurt. Here you go, little mouse. With some with some collagen um, hydrolysate in it, or cartilage hydrolysate in it, and then they uh, just take a little X ray picture of their joints, and it lights up in the joints that were that they had injured. Fun. Did this to the mice. (laughs) The poor mouse. (laughs) Yeah. Here, let me break a (laughs) finger for you. Okay. But it's all right. You're going to get some tasty broth. Oh goody! I'm glad I'm in the study. So if you're consuming a drumstick, meat on the bone, and you're just nibbling away and you're eating the meat off and then you mm-hmm. throw, the, throw the bone in the garbage, are you getting a bit of joint material such that that's a better uh, choice than the chicken breast without any bone present? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, sh- you should actually not throw the bones in the garbage. <laughs> you but... put them in your crock pot, yeah. your instant pot. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, if you don't want to bother doing that, you could do what my two-year-old sister did. She just like gnawed on the, the joint. Like she would just, you know, like a dog with a bone. She was like that. And she's actually the tallest, beefiest of, of everyone, the four children, because she was really into that stuff. And we have like photographs wow. of her chewing on bones. She looks extremely primal when she's two. And, um, and she's like, uh, five eleven or something like that. And, um, you know, she's got shoulders out to like a linebacker and her hands are, uh, they, she can palm a basketball and, and she's, you know, sturdy, right. She's got, she's got big, thick bones and everything. So she's a tough, um, tough guy. <laughs> and, um, that's, you know, guys are supposed to also be able to grow up like that. And nowadays, a lot of children are just not getting anywhere near the nutrition they need. And so they're not developing properly. And it's it's pretty much impossible to raise a well-developed, truly healthy child if you're not giving them all these four pillars and also not keeping them away from vegetable oils, which is one of the one of the things we also talk about in deep nutrition and explain why it's also bad and what all the horrible things that it's going to do to you. Okay, so we were we're going to talk about the the BS of the nutritional supplements, much of it. But I mentioned my ancestral supplements, where I'm consuming in a capsule form, bone broth or beef heart, beef liver, those kind of things. So you'll you're cool with that dispensing uh, the 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 ultimate goal of eating this meat on the bone. And if I can get it in a capsule, I can 
short circuit the idea that maybe I'm not consuming enough bone broth or making it enough in my daily diet? There are a few nutrients that can handle all of that kind of processing. And the nutrients in bone broth are in that. Glycosaminoglycans <laughs> survive in the whole journey into the capsule. Exactly. Uh, but generally speaking, this notion of finding your leaner cuts of meat, and we're so used to having the chicken breast because I'm healthy. Yeah, I don't eat red meat. I'm, I eat chicken and oh, good for you. And the, the leanest possible meats is Again, narrowing that slice of what we should be eating. Yeah, I mean, it's a great way to get your protein, your essential amino acids, but you're missing out on a lot of other stuff that you also need. And um, I mean, the problem is, so what we've done is we've taken away, what we've done is we've taken away like the natural fats. It's actually hard to buy natural fats anymore. And, um, you know, because they, most of the chicken, a lot of the chicken, the cheapest chicken, it's very often the skinless, boneless, and the the cuts of the beef and the pork have been um, trimmed so much. There's very little fat, almost no bones. When you buy dairy, uh, it's hard to find you know full fat yogurt. There's no such thing as full fat flavored yogurt. There's no such thing as um, full fat chocolate milk. So it's very rare that you actually purchase fat anymore. And eighty percent of the fat that uh, the average American gets is not natural. It comes from these vegetable oils that have taken over our diets. And truly they have, there's, you know, the average American gets 30% of their calories, total calories, and 80% of their fat calories from these polyunsaturated vegetable oils. And, and I mean, I, I bring this up on every podcast I'm, I'm on because it, because it is the most important thing to understand about diet. And, and there's, um, if you have to go to work now and they're calling you, <laughs> hey, what's that guy doing in his cubicle? He's listening to podcasts all day. Why? Why ask? Uh, thanks, Rudy, for listening to this podcast all day long. I, I, I met someone who listens to podcasts for eight hours a day because he's doing data entry. It's like, all right, awesome. Now, now I get it. Uh, we'll talk about that after we hit the fourth, um, the fourth pillar of human nutrition. Uh, but that's some, that's some shocking stuff. There's a pull quote right there that you're getting these. 80% of your fats and 30, 20% of your calories 30. is coming from nasty vegetable oil. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and no one's talking about it. And it is completely irresponsible for I know, um, that's you know, your crusade and- right here. That's your crusade. <laughs> okay, give me the fourth one and then we'll graduate from the four pillars and then go deep. But we'll plunge into a vat of uh, steaming hot vegetable oil. Mm, delicious. So um, uh, the fourth is the organ meats. And so these are really the, um, the original supplements because every different organ in an animal's body has a different nutritional profile that um, is going to make it be rich in something very important for us to get. So um, like, for example, liver is a fantastic source of bioavailable B vitamins and, and minerals, particularly iron. Um, and uh, just as an example of the power of a little bit of liver to re- to supplement with iron and reverse anemia, um, I've had patients where they've been taking 325 milligrams of elemental iron in the, the usual form that doctors recommend um, when somebody's iron deficient. Like a lot of women have really heavy periods and they lose too much iron and they need to supplement. So we tell them to take 325 milligrams of iron every day, but that gives them constipation and gut aches and they can't do it. So I have, um, uh, or even if they can do it, sometimes it doesn't quite work. 
because possibly there's not, it's not either bioavailable enough or there's more that they need for their bone marrow to be able to produce red blood cells than just iron because um, red blood cells are made out of a lot of stuff. So when you have, I have had patients who were not getting the results from actually taking that 325 milligrams of iron and taking um, just some liver pills that amount to maybe six milligrams of iron. So, you know, like 120 of whatever the math is there. And, um, and that would correct their anemia. So the effect and um, like, you know, maybe it's the bioavailability, maybe it's the um, fact that it's a whole spectrum of nutrients, but the, the effect of supplementing with liver, or you could just eat liver. So I, I tell them to take dehydrated liver pills because a lot of people think liver is disgusting, mm. so they can't eat it. So you just swallow some pills. Um, but the effect is more powerful than 20 times the amount of elemental iron in a normal supplement. Wow. So that's, so that we're missing out on stuff like that because we don't eat liver. We don't eat heart. We don't eat bone marrow. We don't eat, um, you know, most of the parts of the animal that are available to us. We just waste it or it's made into carpet backing and different kinds of glues and pet food. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period. 
and a special 5% discount for B-Rad podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. I'm pleased to present B-Rad grass-fed whey protein isolate superfuel, the absolute highest quality all-natural protein supplement infused with creatine that delivers everything you need to optimize your appetite for fat loss, recover quickly from workouts, and build and maintain lean muscle mass, the single most important attribute for aging gracefully. Our protein comes directly from small family farms in America's dairy land of Wisconsin. It's cold processed and micro filtered for maximum bioavailability and digestibility. So please don't mess with the many cheap commodity protein supplements that are ineffective, inferior, less pure, and often contain junk sweeteners, especially the plant-based offerings that are vastly less bioavailable than the gold standard of protein supplements that's whey protein isolate. Whether you're in your peak athletic years looking to grow and recover or in the older age groups trying to delay aging and decline, whey and creatine are widely agreed to be the most critical and effective supplements to take for the rest of your life. You can easily stir the super fuel in water or make a delicious smoothie every day. I'm certain that you're going to love the pleasant, light, natural vanilla bean and cocoa bean flavors. So try some on Amazon today. It's a huge hit with dozens of five-star reviews. Or you can order direct from bradnutrition.com with our buy three, get one free, and make the super fuel a centerpiece of your daily routine. Um, <laughs> yeah. Good for the pets. <laughs> right. Someone's getting healthy. Uh, you know, if there's ever an apocalypse, head for the pet food aisle and get the canned dog food and cat food because that's the best stuff in the store that's going to last in, during an apocalypse. Better than the lean chicken breasts you just bought with the organic label on them. Yeah, and we'll, that's going to go bad anyway. You know, the canned stuff's apocalypse ready. So, just curious if we had the uh, the the, um, the the vegan opposition that says, I mean, you seem pretty credible. Doctor Kate seems pretty credible, <laughs> doesn't she? Listeners, viewers, uh, but what would they say in response that uh, that would give them a a counter argument? If they're completely eliminating, what is that, three of the four categories? I mean, oh, they, they can do some fermented stuff yeah, that's vegetable-based, but yeah. they're, they're, they're limiting themselves. Two, you can't do, yeah. you can't do the So they're, the they're cutting the human nutrition optimization in half out of the gate due to much respect to their moral uh, belief system and all that. But what do you say? What would they say? They they wouldn't like me, but right. um, but, but that I mean, you know, I I can't do anything about that. I can't <laughs> expect everybody to. But you know what I've I what I like to do for people who are truly searching for the answers, rather than you know people who've already decided they know the answers, is I, I like to point out that right now in the nutrition world we have a um, complete uh, spectrum of people who are sure that they're right including people saying literally the opposite things, right? So there's people who say you need to eat nothing but plants and you should only eat plants. And there's people on the other side saying you should eat nothing but animals and you need to only eat animals, right? That's the carnivore diet. And um, and we have this spectrum of confusion because 
Harvard and the, you know, the medical industry is pretending that nutrition science began mm. in 1950. And, mm. and you have to use statistics to figure out what you're supposed to eat. And you can't, heaven forbid, just look at what granny used to make and look at cookbooks. That is science. That is a body of science. Like we started out this whole conversation. That is a body of science that is right now being ignored. But the, it, within the pages of every cookbook older than 50, 60, 70 years old are instructions for building a healthy human. And if you just look at Fanny Farmer cookbook that's been reproduced now from 1895, you'll see that they use like esophagus and everything. Everything's people, everything I'm talking about, the four pillars, they're all in there. They don't do a lot with fermented food. I, I think at that point in time, that um, wasn't appreciated or it was um, too regional or I, I don't exactly know why it didn't make it into those cookbooks. Fermented foods are kind of like one of those secret things that maybe people don't want to talk about because like wine or something. I don't know. It's proprietary. Maybe somebody was selling refrigerator, <laughs> yeah. maybe selling the first ice boxes. Right. Yeah, right. Maybe. My dad still calls the refrigerator the ice box. And those of you who are not aware of that, <laughs> before refrigerators with a plug, we had ice boxes and the ice man used to come and deliver ice. And that's where you put right. your stuff. So then the the desperate need for fermentation would be overrun by industry in yeah, that example. Exactly. So that could be, you know, why they're, they're kind of like the first ones to fall off. But, but um, you know, fortunately, there's a resurgence now of all people doing all kinds of Sandor Katz, a little shout out to him. He, he's, he um, has a book called Wild Fermentation. He's a couple other books about fermentation that are all just great references on how to ferment stuff in your own kitchen without even you know buying anything other than the food you're going to ferment in a few containers. So um, that, so that's a that's that. Uh, so fermentation and organ meats, I kind of mix about mix up about them because of the fact that they have similar flavor profiles. They're very complex flavor profiles. They're often very um, overwhelming to the uninitiated. <laughs> um, and and they're overwhelming you. I use that word on purpose because they're overwhelming you with flavor, right? Like people put a little bit of, say, you know, liver pate or um, natto, which is fermented soybeans on their tongue. And they're like, Oh my God, that is so strong, the flavor. And, and that is an, a reflection of the nutrition that it has. So our, our brains are just not wired to learn, to understand all of that information because we haven't gotten it. It is an overwhelming amount of nutritional value that our brains just haven't been trained to tease out and separate and understand at, for what it's worth for its true value. So we spit it out and we're like, this is disgusting, but it is actually loaded with nutrition. And so, so if you want to start enjoying that stuff, there is a way to do it. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, you come full circle, right? Like you, you're like, well, I, I want to eat good food that I enjoy, but then you also learn more about nutrition and what you're missing out on by not eating some very nutritious foods that you just don't happen to like. And you're like, well, I'll eat it if I have to, if it's good for me, but I don't want people to do that. I want people to train themselves just like you would train a little child, like have a little tiny taste when you're hungry. And that's the best way to start actually liking some foods that are good for you. Right. You mentioned that um, in, in the Keto Reset Diet material that I quoted you, where especially if you're an athlete, maybe this was in Primal Endurance, where if you come back from your three-hour hard workout and you're famished and you bust open a can of sardines, which you hate, sardines are disgusting, can't stand them. Yeah. But if you eat them at those times when, when your appetite center is most 
primed for rewiring, you can actually make yourself like these certain foods that you should eat, but you don't have, have not acquired the taste yet, or the taste has been overrun by lifelong consumption of sugar. Yes. One of my favorite patients um, has uh, told me that hunger is the great teacher, right? And it's really true. Like, and it's, you know, it, literally true with hunger as well as with other things that you hunger for. But, um, but when you're hungry, your brain is ready to understand the more complex nutrients that it maybe doesn't really have the ability to understand when you're not so hungry. But but wait, I'm never hungry because I <laughs> eat three meals a day. I'm an American standard American <laughs> diet. When's the last time you were hungry? Can we answer? Pause this tape for a minute. Well, sometimes so, sometimes people aren't hungry. Yeah, so for for years. Or they're not actually hungry, they're experiencing energy emergencies. So so oh. this is that what I'm talking about in my next book called The Fat Burn Fix and there's a course I'm going to be releasing about that too at some point, but um but um the Fat Burn Fix is all about helping us get our true hunger back and stop um being slave to these energy crisis sorts of hunger where we crave basically sugar. Um, and, and so, you know, if you're having an energy crisis and you're craving sugar and you're feeling hypoglycemic and hangry, that is not true hunger. We're not ever supposed to feel that way. We are, um, we are having an energy crisis and, and that is an impossibly unhealthy state. Um, you cannot really create new cravings and healthy cravings from that state. You have to, you have to resolve yourself of those crises. So that's like phase one of my protocol that um, I work people through when I work with them um, is to get them away from those energy emergency crises. And those are resultant from uh, craving sugar, from blood sugar dropping basically. uh, Difficulty or inability to burn stored energy, produce ketones. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, So just quickly, since we kind of jumped into that topic, if you're eating these three meals a day and they're high in carbohydrate and you do so for years and decades, you become dependent on those outside calories because all that insulin produced after each of these meals, hyperinsulinemia is the condition. So you're carrying that with you for years and years. You suck at burning stored body fat, as Mark Sisson would say. That is not entirely the story. So that's an important That's why piece. we have Dr. Kate on the podcast to get the whole story <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's an important piece of the puzzle, but it is not the first thing that goes wrong. The first thing that goes wrong is that your body gets damaged when it tries to burn fat. Gets damaged? Your, your mitochondria. Well, that's where your body produces energy. That's where your body burns fat. And these little parts of your cell called mitochondria that generate cellular energy, the ATP. And when your mitochondria try to burn vegetable oil, they produce a lot of free radicals and it, it shuts them down. It, it, they can't produce energy. Um, it's, there's something in there called the uncoupling protein that basically it's, it's like you blew a fuse in your mitochondria. It shuts them down. Their ATP um, production stops. And so um, cells will die if they don't have an alternative source of fuel. But they do have an alternative source of fuel in this world where there's sugar you know, available within easy reach. So that's how people become dependent on sugar. So the culprit, the cause is this lifelong ingestion of vegetable oil, hand in hand with sugar, obviously, when we're talking about basic modern diet, but the vegetable oil gets ingested and then it stays in there and it integrates into the fat cells. And then we try to burn it and it's uh, dysfunctional or 
it's not meant to be there in the first place or what happens? We're not supposed to have so much of it. So um, our diets now have uh, about 20 times the amount of linoleic acid. So linoleic acid is the most common polyunsaturated fatty acid that's in the vegetable oils, which are soy, uh, sunflower, safflower, corn, canola, cotton seed. So those are the most common vegetable oils and linoleic acid is the polyunsaturated fatty acid that's in there. So you can actually biopsy human beings and, you know, our fat and see how much linoleic acid we have in our fat. And then you can go back to biopsies that were done hundred years ago and see how much they had back then. And you find that it's 20 times as much. So we have radically altered the composition of our bodies. How about 50 years ago? 50 years ago, it was about 7%. Um, so, it was, so now it was, it's over 20% now. And it was 1% or 2% 100 years ago? Yeah. Because these foods didn't exist. Right. So we, when you were getting, you wouldn't be getting that much linoleic acid and you wouldn't be getting that much polyunsaturated fatty acid because there are those in, you know, you do get, uh, there, we're talking about omega-3 fatty acid and omega-6 fatty acid. And of course, those are naturally occurring in food, but it's in a lower amount. And, and, and our bodies don't need that stuff so much for energy. We don't want it for energy, we use it for signaling and we use it for building um, nervous tissue and for the proper uh, fluidity, maintaining the proper fluidity of our cell membranes and our body temperature. And I think that this oil is a big reason behind the epidemic of thyroid disease um, because our thyroids trying to our thyroids are very primal organs and they are, they, they do stuff like maintain our body temperature. And that is so basic. And, um, and it's based on physics. And when we've changed the, the melting point basically of our body fat, um, then the physics by which our thyroid operate have been disturbed and our thyroid doesn't operate properly anymore. So we got tons of people with um, thyroiditis, thyroid nodules, hypothyroid, um, and um, and it, it, there wasn't this epidemic of thyroid disease before vegetable oils. And even more like correlating, if you have to use correlatives to figure things out, um, pet food. Um, you ask a vet who's been around for 30, 40 years, pets now are starting to get thyroid disease and thyroid nodules and stuff uh, that they didn't before. And pet food didn't used to have all this soy oil in it until about 10 years ago. So um, there's a lot of arrows pointing towards soy oil, canola oil, and the vegetable oils being the number one scourge, far more important than sugar. And, you know, I, I think it's important to understand that, you know, sugar is addicting and bad and not be controlled by it and by your sweet cravings, but it's way more important as um, a health care provider for me to tell people that vegetable oil is, if you just get vegetable out of your diet, you're going to do way more good than if you get sugar out of your diet. If you just isolate that one thing. Now, what happens is when people decide to eat healthy, they stop eating junk food. Um, right. So they'll say, whether they say they cut gluten or they, they're now they're vegan and they, they cut their red meat or they say they cut, um, soy, or they say they cut, um, whatever, you know, they also almost always stop eating junk food. And the number one source of calories in junk food is vegetable oil, right? The chips and everything, the the vegetable oil and sugar, but vegetable oil is 
the greater source of calories. And so when people start feeling better by following any diet where they've eliminated anything, I always ask them, so do you still do takeout Chinese? No, no, of course not. I don't do that. Even though I'm, I've gone gluten-free, right? Like, so, and, and they'll say it's because I'm avoiding the gluten in the soy sauce or something like, you know, there's like a nano gram of, <laughs> of gluten. In Good for you. That, nevertheless. <laughs> So, so it's not doing that much to avoid that nanogram. What's really helping you is avoiding the, you know, hundreds of calories of vegetable oil that are disturbing the basic physics by which your body is trying to operate. So we have the producing too much insulin uh, as, as one small part of the puzzle, but then we have these dysfunctional fat cells and the vegetable oil has been integrated there because we've been eating it for years and decades. And so if we want to clean up our diet tomorrow and ditch these vegetable oils, um, how is our health journey going to improve? What happens then? So, well, what you're going to do is substitute it with something actually healthy. And so what I usually recommend is just, you know, the usual shop at the edge of the grocery store, but make sure to get animal fat, like don't do the boneless, skinless chicken. Um, get the bone in skin on and get, uh, don't do the 80 or the 95% lean ground beef, get the 80%. But it, you know, it's also really, really important to talk about what the animals were fed because that's going to impact their body composition and what their fat is made out of. And so if you go and just get like, you know, the normal grocery store is only going to have normal CAFO, you know, soy oil, corn oil, chicken and ground beef and stuff. That's, that's still better than eating the boneless, skinless, and then getting all your fat in the form of vegetable oil. But, um, it, you know, it's like 10 times more expensive to get pasture-raised meats. And it's just, it's really a, a big problem. And that is our health crisis right there is that healthy food isn't available, right? It's not to affordable. mention the, available, affordable. There's not, if everybody tomorrow were to start, you know, somehow deciding they wanted to spend more money on on eating healthy food, we wouldn't have enough because the, you know, they talk about the GMOs are going to feed the world. What's really feeding the world is the fact that we aren't feeding the animals that we eat properly. We're not giving them grass. They need grass and that takes space and it takes time. And that's why it's more expensive when it's grass fed and pasture raised, you know, like, you know, sheep and chickens and pigs and pigs don't eat grass, but they, they root around in forests and stuff and, and eat mushrooms and chestnuts and worms and whatever they can dig up. But that is a whole different food chain. And we have altered that food chain over the past 50 years. And, and that's behind the health crisis. And no one is talking about that either, the food chain, right? This, it's not like we just have like one easy answer. Oh, you can just cut gluten and everything's going to be fine. And miraculously, there's going to be, you know, everybody's going to be skipping and dancing and holding hands and going to get along and be healthy and just discard all their medications. No, it's going to take a radical reconstruction of the way we produce food in this country and the way we think about it. But, you know, the, the bottom line is if you want to be healthy, you can individually radically reconstruct your lifestyle and start with something easy. You don't start with a radical reconstruction. I didn't. I just started by um, cutting out vegetable oil. How long ago? 2004. Mm -hmm. What did you notice? I didn't even notice I had done anything. Mm. Because um, I, I just, uh, what I was doing was um, just eating more butter. And I mean, I just like, I didn't notice anything. It was not hard. 
And what happened though, was that I had much more control over my craving for sugar. That's the first thing I really noticed that I was no longer completely slave to, to sugar. <laughs> you were 75% slave. Yes, I was still slave, but I was not 100%. <laughs> so what's the association between having the vegetable oil in your diet and then craving for sugar? Is that is it because it's messing up your fat metabolism? Correct. It's It's making your mitochondria basically shut down every time your body is trying to burn your body fat or you know eat the the fat from your diet. So what happens is the cells basically desperate for something else, they put more sugar receptors on their surface, right? So they they just basically find some way to get more energy and it's going to be in the form of sugar or even protein. A lot of people who can't burn their body fat burn amino acids for energy mm-hmm. as well. Um so um so that's the basis of the uncontrolled, the 100% slave to sugar is, is the vegetable oils. And once you start cutting down on those and giving your body some actual fat that it can metabolize properly without killing your cells um, or killing, I mean, shutting down your mitochondrial energy production, then you your cells can do something other than crave sugar. So this is unwinding this horrible problem of uh, diet failures, where we're trying to come into this with willpower, resolve, even if it's negativity, I've let myself go. And now for sure on January 1st, I'm going to start this diet, no matter what, I'm going to stay away from my vices of a pint of Ben and Jerry's in the evening and all that stuff. And then the most well-meaning people who are burning calories through their devoted exercise routine and trying not to shop for this crap. But what happens uh, uh, metabolically is not having that energy to access and burn to get you through the day. And then you're, you're left in a desperate state where your, your head's going to fall down at your desk in your cube. And the brain is, I imagine, sending strong signals like oh, the, the ghrelin hormone strong. is going crazy. Beyond strong. You, you, your brain is desperate for energy. And if it doesn't get energy, you can have a seizure or a stroke. I mean, that's not something that happens too often. But Or, or just pass out. I mean, I know from bicycle riding, if I don't put that gel into my mouth at mile 80, it's not going to look good at mile 90. I'm going to be pushing for Uber, but uh, this was before Uber. So you you had to have that sugar and the, the drive is so powerful. So what happens to a lot of people is they get headaches. And we now know that people who suffer frequent headaches actually have on MRI, they have identical changes to people who've had miniature strokes multiple miniature strokes. So these, you know, headaches are occurring because your brain is needing energy in an area um, that's not getting enough. And the, the, um, I mean, that's my take on it, on, on these particular types of subset of migraine headaches. Um, Is it a certain description of the headache? Does it, does it have to be the strong, heavy pressure on one side or is it just headache in general? Headache associated with hunger. Headache associated with hunger. Yeah. That, that Dang girl, I can I can raise my hand there. That used to happen a lot. Just headaches, yeah. So that you know, if we ever did an MRI of your brain and we saw white matter changes, can somebody a, a doctor might say, "Oh, you you might have arteriosclerosis. You better cut your cheese and you know habit." But it would really truly have possibly resulted. Hopefully, you don't have them, but um, would have resulted more from those energy crises that are re- a result of your body depending on sugar and not getting enough energy. 
uh, your brain not getting enough energy at some points in time. So your brain is a high energy organ, right? It's a high performance organ. It uses 20% of your calories at rest, right? That's more per square, whatever centimeter than any other part of the body at rest. And that means it has to get a lot of blood in that area. And it's very easy to run out of um, fuel, uh, it, very easy for the brain to run out of fuel. And uh, particularly if you're fueling with sugar, because it, it is a less efficient fuel and our bloodstream can only carry about 15 calories of sugar at any given time. In the total, total circulating volume of the bloodstream, you have very little sugar. Very little energy, right? And we have, you know, somewhere around ninety to one hundred of fat. If we are, you know, burning any level of of fat between meals, right? So, um, let's say you wake up in the morning, you've got more energy at that point in time in your bloodstream from fat than at any other point of time during the day if you're following a standard American diet, and certainly far more than uh, of sugar. At that point in time. When you wake up. When you wake up. Because you haven't messed up yet with an orange juice, oatmeal, toast, apple butter, and some fresh fruit. Right. And some uh, flavored yogurt. Right. So Once you you pound that stuff, what happens to the fat energy and what happens in your bloodstream? So then that shuts down your um, release of fat from your your fat stores and uh, so that your body can then metabolize whatever you just ate. Um, And if there's fat in it, then hopefully your body will be able to burn that unless it's all vegetable oil and your body's already decided we're not going to do that. We're going to just crave more sugar. So this is where people get into this horrible, vicious cycle uh, that they feel like they can't lose weight and they have to work so hard to lose weight and they gain it back really easily, that's because their cells are dependent on sugar. And it's very difficult to lose weight when your cells are are wanting to burn sugar and resist burning your body fat. It's like you have this toxic, um, your your body fat, you can think of it as like a jacket on, you know, under your skin, right? That's where you store most of your body fat is right under your skin, uh, your arms, your legs, your belly, under your chin, even a little bit on your face. Um, and, um, and that body fat that you have stored, if you've been eating a standard American diet loaded with vegetable oil, 20% linoleic acid is got basically junk fat in there that your body can't use for energy. So you have this toxic jacket of fat that you need to be able to burn for energy in order to lose fat. But when you burn it for energy as it is, it hurts your mitochondria Mm. and promotes inflammation, makes you feel bad. And so what do you do? That's why I created the protocol that I'm creating in the fat burn fix because you really are locked in a vicious cycle and there is a way out, but you have to kind of follow a very um, somewhat strict protocol to, to get out of it. So that's, that's the courses I'm going to teach, teach people how to do that. How do you get out of that? What do you do? What do you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And, and how do you break yourself out of that cycle so that you can actually start using your body fat without hurting yourself? And a big part of that is, um, is actually going to be my very first supplement. I'm actually going to have like a little supplement, which I'm very excited to be able to produce with Natural Stacks. Thank you for listening to the show. We would love your feedback at getoveryourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And we would also love if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a hassle. You have to go to desktop iTunes, click on the tab that says ratings and reviews, and then click to rate the show. 
anywhere from five to five stars. And it really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and get over themselves because they need to. Thanks for doing it. Here's a wild idea. How about eating some good, clean, delicious, sustainably raised meat instead of the nasty, trashy feedlot animals? The vast majority of our meat consumption. No wonder there's vegetarians and vegans out there. But look, Wild Idea Buffalo is 100% grass-fed and finished meat. They roam on the open range as they have been for 130,000 years. This wonderful company is doing the best they can to give these animals a good life, harvest them in a humane manner. Check this out. 40 million cattle are slaughtered every year and pushed into the mainstream food supply. You've read books like Fast Food Nation with the disastrous health impact and consequences of this mess. And then, by contrast, 60,000 buffalo a year are harvested. Much more nutritional value, much better feeling deep inside when you order quality meat. Go to wildidea.com, order direct, they'll ship it to your house. It's delicious. You'll be a convert right away. There's nothing in the world like buffalo burger. Fantastic. Try it. 